0: This is Mentally Unscripted, Episode 41, So What, The Tyranny of Merit, and Everyone Gets a Participation Trophy.
1: Hey, Welcome back to another episode of Mentally Unscripted, the podcast where we discuss really interesting topics and find better ways for you to think about them and have conversations with your friends and family about them. As always, I am Paul. I'm here with uh, King Anarchy
0: Scott. Scott, how are you today? I'm doing great. So I was listening to some Metallica this morning while I was working out. Say what you want about Metallica these days, sell out hacks, whatever. Their first three records were incredible so i was jamming out to that this morning back to my high school days
1: back to high school days do you have a favorite song of the collection
0: i don't know probably fade to black um off Ride of the lightning always can get into that song that was the that was my gateway into metallica
1: all right i absolutely love that song so my gateway was the black album and then i worked my way back from that and then i think to this day my favorite song is orion the instrumental
0: Oh yeah, yeah, that was a good one. Yeah, I, I never got much into the instrumentals, but yeah, um, they did some good ones.
1: They did some some great ones, and that's Cliff Burton, the original bassist, who died on a uh, bus accident, I believe. Yep. Um
0: I think they hit some in, black ice in Germany.
1: Was it was it Germany? Okay, I think so. Right.
0: Yeah, uh,
1: he was a, a musical just absolute monster he was so cool and and watching some of the videos this is the the brilliance that we have with today's world with uh, youtube i was able to watch uh, videos of these concerts people clearly had him on like handy cams or whatever technology they had at the day and uh him doing his solos and uh just running around the stage with a uh blue jean jacket and pant matching pants i mean that was <laughs> it was amazing that that was the fashion that was seen as the renegade as the rebel right yeah Oh, it's it's fantastic. Um, well, that's great. I'm. Uh, th- that's the kind of music that can re- actually get you really inspired. I, I think old Metallica is just uh, it's amazing. For anybody who doesn't listen to Metallica, if you don't want to listen directly to them, go watch watch some reaction videos. Younger people listening to Metallica, it's absolutely brilliant. Oh, Uh, yeah! the the surprise on their face the change-ups oh it's it's amazing
0: yeah i have to do that i've never done that (laughs) never really cared about how other people react to stuff but i guess maybe maybe i just need to get out of my shell (laughs) it it is it i
1: mean i I say this in all sincerity it is a treat to watch people that have never heard this music before to someone say well someone told me to listen to the song by metallica i've i actually watched a video where a girl cried she was so emotionally impacted by one of the songs that she couldn't hold hold back it was it was incredible and and of course you've heard this song you know any of those songs i've heard them now 50 60 80 hundreds of times i still love them and i go back to them to watch someone see it for the first time like a child with this sense of surprise and awe it's 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 actually very very cool
0: yeah. Unfortunately, Metallica lost me with, uh, Lars Ulrich taking the stack of IP addresses down to the courthouse, trying to get people busted on Napster. That was when <laughs> I just thought, well, this is not Metallica. This is not what Metallica made me think they were.
1: Yeah, that's right. Lars, buddy, you're killing us. Yeah, you're killing us.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of
1: justice, when we think about, uh, Metallica and I don't know how many times they use the word justice, um, Today we're going to be talking about justice, goodness, fairness, uh, civic ideals, and common good. And we're going to be reviewing a book by uh, philosopher Michael Sandel called The Tyranny of Merit. And uh, it's, it's a fascinating book that explores uh, how the concept of merit works in our, today's Western society and in Michael's mind how we need to upgrade from it in order to further improve society so it's really you know what what is merit how does it shape society and what is his argument for moving beyond it i'm pretty sure it's safe to say we've spoken offline about it there's there's many parts with the book that we didn't find convincing or disagreed with i think i'll i'll sh- shine a light on some of the areas that i i thought were beneficial and uh, i'm sure we'll we'll have a a good discussion about what just didn't really click at all for either one of us
0: i found myself playing armchair quarterback so to speak uh, just- <laughs> Instead of yelling at the TV, thinking the quarterback could hear me, I was yelling at my Kindle, thinking the author could hear me. That's right. And apparently, that does not work. There's no no microphone on the Kindle, I guess. So,
1: so yeah, someone's wondering. Uh, yeah, that doesn't work. Don't don't give it a go, and definitely don't throw that Kindle. Right. Uh, <laughs> so why don't why don't we start with a bit of a, a review? I'm going to try and make this brief. Uh, one thing I would say about the book is that it really does, in one way, it covers a lot of topics. But in another way, it just rambles on in other areas where it feels like it, it could have covered the topics without going into the type of depth it was, it was trying to achieve. So that's you know that's kind of an initial criticism I have. But but before I even get into the review, the book came on my radar through a substack article from Matt Taibi. Uh, where he, he used it as a, as a framing for what he's seeing in society with where we were talking about with uh, vaccine mandates and sort of vaccine passports and how we see about the, the vaccinated, unvaccinated and how it's turning into this uh, yet another type of tribal war. And he looked at this book and he, uh, he pulled out this idea that, um, as, as merit has, has moved its way into society and the con- conception that we're two different tribes, that the idea that the smart and the college educated are allowed to be bigoted against the the uneducated class. It's kind of the last bigotry that remains that's still polite uh, available to you in polite society. So I thought, well, that's that's kind of an interesting take. Maybe this is a great uh, book for for Scott and I to read. Uh, I, I would say that I, I probably should have just <laughs> could have stayed with the Substack article. Maybe maybe glean quite quite a lot from that. But anyways, without further ado, let's let's kind of get through what the book actually is. So. Michael has makes the claim and the observation that Western, Western societies are struggling, and they're struggling as we see, and we can measure that in a couple of different ways. One of them is he looks at the inequality that's measured by the amount of income and, and wealth that's held by different parts of society, and he can point out to the fact that the wealthy are extremely wealthy and the poor are extremely poor and relative in a relative sense. He also points to the the political divide or the inability for us to, to to talk to each other through sort of civic engagement. And he points that out by looking at some of the events that happened over the la- last presidency, Donald Trump's presidency. Uh, he looks at January 6th and talking about how there was just a lot of frustration that occurred on this event. And then he looks at the rise of populism in other parts of the world, noting Brexit and some of the uh, the movements in places like France. So he he points to those topics and saying listen we're having a problem the, the sort of the civic idea of what we we we're, we're doing collectively as citizens in these countries seems to be struggling so we're seeing a rise of populism which can be xenophobic and racist and therefore we need to be evaluating what's happening in our societies and look uh, at a way of correcting it so from there, he goes on to say that merit, the concept of merit is actually one of the key problems that we face in our society. And I think for most of us, uh, merit as a concept isn't something that we necessarily, at least within the last 30, 40, 50 years, have considered a, a problem or anything that would actually contribute to problems. But Michael actually says the opposite. He says that we we have a, a create a system that's based on merit says that you are responsible for achieving. And if you're unable to achieve, then there's something wrong with you. That you're gonna create this resentment that you, you're not able to to achieve and you're left out of society. And for the people that do achieve, which in the book, really, he, he identifies those of the people that have gone on and earned college degrees that are able to benefit from globalization and the change in our economy. They feel as though they've earned it all. They've earned everything that's happened to them, which gives us a sense of hubris. A word that is used, I don't know, countless times in the book to the point I I, I don't think I want to hear it for another month or two. There were just too too many times it was being used. That's kind of where we are. We have an issue where we've got a rise of populism, which which and, and inequality, which suggests that we're we're doing a terrible job with our societies that they're fraying, that merit and how it operates and manifests itself is creating this this disdain between different parts of the population. And it's creating an inability to have a civic society. So, to take those ideas further, one of the concepts or two of the ideas that come out of this idea of the tyranny of merit uh, is that there is a sorting mechanism that attempts to sort people at the college level by the haves and the have nots. So, uh, you know, that the the idea that we're constantly trying to find who are the smartest people in our society, who are the ones that are most capable, and, and factor them into the most elite colleges. He uses this as a way to say we're, we're sorting people, creating this this constant race to the bottom. In this case, it's it's a race to the top. And it's it forces us to constantly be more and more competitive to each other. It also, as those people are able to enter into those positions that they achieve through racing to the top, it gives them an inflated sense that they are better than others. And this, he argues, leads to this great sorting, leads to this idea of better than and worse than the the smart versus the dumb. And then from there, he also makes a claim that the concept extends itself, not just between the smart and the dumb, but also to this concept of legitimate, valuable work, and just other work, work that just isn't dignified. and He talks a lot about that in the book, this this concept that people do jobs that are meaningful for society, but the people that have done so well by being able to to be sorted at the very top, go to elite institutions, and then get great jobs with great pay, look at this other work as less dignified. So I think that, that kind of sums up his his concept. We've got this sort of sorting that it, that it, that goes at the top based on this concept of merit. You have all of these terrible externalities that occur because of it, this this hubris, this also the sense of, of being uh, less valuable to society if you're at the bottom. And therefore, we need to solve and move beyond merit, move beyond this next area of merit. So I'm, I'm going to pause there, Scott. I know there's a lot of other minutia within the book. He dives in, as I said, a lot of other topics from an overall summation. I know I didn't give the solutions that he gave. I thought we could talk about those as, as we continue through our discussion. But as a summary, was there any other key points that
0: I missed? No, I think you nailed it. This was a book that probably could have been about a third as long as it was because he just kept repeating the same thing over and over again. In fact, I think about the first three chapters was all centered around just this idea of hubris and resentment. It wasn't really until about the fourth chapter that he started to expand a little bit more when he went into Hayek and Rawls and talked Mm -hmm. about their philosophies. So no, I I think you got it. I mean, for as long as the book's not really that long, it's what, like 240 pages or something. So it's pretty short anyway. And there's really just that one core idea built into it. And he just tries to justify it to the point where it, yeah, it was getting frustrating. I'm with you. I don't know how many different times and how many different ways he could reward the people who succeed have hubris, or have hubris, and the people who don't succeed are resentful. And I don't know. <laughs> he right, should win yeah. an award for, you know, coming up with the most different ways to say that. But he just kept hammering away on that. And I I thought it was pretty funny that he's a, I believe he teaches in the law school at Harvard. And I remember that in law school, we were always taught to keep hammering away at your point, right? If you're writing a brief, (laughs) just keep hammering away at your point. I'm thinking like, well, this guy, this guy took that to heart. Um, He took it to heart. Yeah. yeah.
1: (laughs) I found myself thinking as I, as I read this, that I was looking for different type of meat and I, I, I asked myself, well, when was the last time you read a book by a pure philosopher, someone that actually notes that that is their title? And I think it's been a very long time. I mean, I'm going back to college, but I, you know, a lot of the philosophers at the time are sort of what I would consider the core. If it's Nietzsche, if it's Kant, if it's um, Aristotle, if it's Plato, it's you know that you're reading an attempt by a historic philosopher to try and understand the world and society. And now I fast forward. I'm reading a book about someone trying to take a very, I would say, day day to day type of activity and challenge. And then summarize it from a, a philosophical standpoint. It, it just it didn't feel like it had the meat that I'm accustomed to. And I, I I'll, I'll say when I read something like Jonathan Haidt, who's doing evolutionary psychology, and they go into the depth of why these characteristics of our personality have evolved and how they've emerged and changed, and then also where where they have both pro, uh, pros and cons. That resonates with me. It feels like a deeper understanding of the world rather than a philosophical of today's society i, I don 't want to state that there's no value here, but it didn 't feel to seem to have the same to meet i 'm not sure if you had a similar sense. I know we, we both agree it could have been shorter, but even just just the weight of it didn 't feel like, as, as, like I guess as, as heavy or didn 't have the same gravitas.
0: No, it, it definitely seemed pretty shallow to me. Uh, I got the impression that he had his conclusion and he was trying to work backwards to find the facts that would support his conclusion. And in a lot of cases, the, p- the facts were really thin. So he had yes. to depend on a lot of assumptions and reading into the words and actions of people who he was using for ex- as examples in order to yeah. try to justify his position. But at no point did he produce any stinging you know, smoking gun evidence of any of this being true, that there are people out there and there are undoubtedly people out there who are arrogant jerks. Who will look at their success as, you know, they're look, they look at themselves as like the chosen one or something. But there's plenty of people out there who are incredibly successful who are very humble and understand the yes. role that luck and fate played in their success. And he seemed to just never even acknowledge that those people were out there. To him, right. success was hubris and lack of success right. was resentment. And one of the problems that, or one of the things that frustrated me is that he never, he never really defined success but he seemed to throughout the book, he kept equating it to financial success and success was only if you're making money. And if you're not making money, you're resentful, but, I know there are a lot of people out there who they're good at things that don't make a lot of money, but they're still incredibly happy. And, mm-hmm. you know, I've got a friend, one of my great good friends from high school, you know, he lives over in Frankfurt in Germany. And I mean, this guy is smart. He could have done anything he wanted to, but he wanted to go into theater. And so he's working with this small, like little, like theater troupe that does like theater in the park type thing. And, He's not making a ton of money, but he loves it. And I mean, right. are you going to tell me that he's resentful? <laughs> you know, I, I just don't buy it. And this was so the, the big thing that kept screaming out to me was confirmation bias and disconfirming evidence. He just he, he seemed to be latching on and reading into things in a way that would support his conclusion while while ignoring the fact that any counter evidence even exists, that it's possible for someone to be incredibly happy and view themselves as being a success if they're not rich. And now he never really comes out and says that, but several places in the book, he, he really made it sound like he was equating success with financial gain or financial standing. Right. You just can't do that. To me, it's just, it's an overgeneralization. And that was one of the places where I was really having some trouble. um, Yeah. Coming up with that.
1: I really agree with everything that you just stated. There's just a lack of, um, I would say a well-rounded Kind of perspective, and you know, for, for for our audience here, a lot of the information or the examples that were shared were he analyzed language that came from political speeches. So he uses language coming from Trump. He'll use one, uh, some coming from Obama. Uh, uses some that came from Hillary Clinton, and sort of seems to extrapolate that out to be the perspective of how people see, rather than being used as a political tool. Um, and so, you know, one one of the points of analysis he talks about was was the the time when uh, Barack Obama went to uh, made the speech. I'm, I'm not. I was going to say where it was, but I actually don't recall. But he gave the speech about how people didn't build um, their businesses on their own, and that they they should be, I guess, humble or they should be giving uh, more contribution or thanks to other parts. Now. He makes the case in the book that that was that was Obama trying to say, listen, you didn't make that on your own. Like, i.e., your your community around you is important, and yeah, the government plays a role. And then he says, well, then you know, the conservatives or the Republicans on the right said, well, look, Obama's basically saying that the uh, you know the government is responsible for your success, and so he, he tried to cherry. I wouldn't say cherry pick. He tried to analyze the language, but to your point, I think there's a there's so much information that would have been very interesting. Uh, just different studies, and you could look at attitudes and polls, different Pew studies, and you could have come up with some novel ways of testing this. We know to the point that you're making about um, you know, <laughs> when he's looking for confirmation bias, there's all kinds of inf- interesting studies that have been done on a uh, neuroscience level about what actually creates happiness. Uh, he doesn't tie that in. This is more of a philosophical view. So I think we agree. It's, it's overly long, it, it's repetitive in parts uh, when it, it doesn't really need to be. Uh, I think I would say that I, I wouldn't recommend this to other people to read. I think the summations you'll find online are, are pretty good. Um, if but I, I And I will get into a few points that I did like uh, that he raises and I thought did make me think a little bit differently. But in general, I wouldn't recommend this to other people. What do you think?
0: I agree. There's some good, interesting things in it. Like I said, once you get to chapter four, it opened up for me and it got more interesting. I got more into it. But overall for the amount of time that you have to invest in it, I agree with you just read a just listen to this podcast or just read <laughs> yes. you know go get the spark notes or or whatever they called they were Cliff's notes back yeah. in my day, but I don't know spark notes now or whatever, and read that because it's basically like you've said, success leads to arrogant hubris, lack of success leads to resentment, and that's bad for the world and right. so as we go through this, i'm just going to I'm just going to say this now, and I'll probably touch on it again at the end, but just think, so what? Yeah. As I was reading this, I just kept thinking, so what? There's arrogant people no matter what. Okay. Moving away from this meritocratic society is not going to get rid of arrogant people. Even if we were in the aristocracy, which he claimed in the aristocracy, there wouldn't be this hubris. That's bull. I can guarantee you that there are plenty of people out there who feel entitled based off of the family they're born into not based off of any effort or value they create. Okay. So we, we go back to more of that framework. Okay. So, okay. We still have arrogant people and, you know, and you mentioned something I just thought of when you were talking is a lot of his examples came from politics. Well, I mean, these are the most arrogant, elitist (laughs) jerks in the world. I I mean, of course they're going to think that they, you know, are the chosen ones and that they deserve everything they have. I mean, hell, Nancy Pelosi was on Wolf Blitzer saying, you know, the people love us. We feed them. I mean, come on. Yeah, <laughs> get out, right. get away from politics. I mean, l- listen to an episode of Joe Rogan, and he sits there and makes fun of himself about how he started his podcast that's making him $100 million now is just an excuse for him and his friends to get together and get drunk and goof off. I mean, <laughs> yeah, right,
1: right. No, I, I Absolutely. No, I, I actually love that. Ask that question, so what? So why why don't we start with this? Let's let's get into some of what we think are the arguments. But I think the first one I would look at is he his point on this book is to how to go beyond to a new common good. And he starts off, um, actually, this was one of my frustrations. I feel like even though the book title talks about a, a sort of a common good or moving beyond a common good, that's That's packed in the very end, whereas it could have, it should have been at the very front, like how are we even defining what this common good in a better society is but here are the, here are the points that i I got so ethically, so in order to be an ethical society, a society must balance justice, goodness, and progress to achieve an ethical standing so that's a claim that he makes um and in some of the the notes that he puts in there he cites I think a Catholic bishop or a pope talking about sort of their views on what a society is and how, how a society and a government needs to provide for its people. And there's there's a couple of other ideas in there, but again they're they're philosophical, but I, I didn't feel like I had the meet. And you know, I, I I come back to this concept of is this true? How do we know that this is true, that this is the ethical standing? A society must balance justice, goodness, and progress I I'm not saying I disagree. And maybe this is part that we can all agree. Yeah, no, this is actually a good framework for thinking about an ethical society. I don't know. Scott, how did you when you read about his definition of a good ethical society, how did it hit you?
0: My question is, what what does he mean by justice and progress? And what was the other one? Justice, progress, and goodness. Goodness. You could argue that it's equality of outcome is justice. But that's not progress because you're going to be holding people back who could be doing much, much more. You're holding mm-hmm. people back that could be carrying society forward. Would Elon Musk have been able to create Tesla if we were in a society where we focused on equality of outcome? I mean, we wouldn't have. So you could say, well, that's justice, but then you're sacrificing progress for that. Right. And he, he seems to miss that. Across the entire book, the idea that, yeah, so some people, well, he was criticizing globalization and a move towards a free market going back to Reagan. So, first off, I don't understand why he keeps insisting that meritocracy is a modern conception. I mean, I always thought that the United States was founded on this idea of meritocracy, that we were not going to have an aristocracy, that you could come over here and work hard. And become a successful person. So why all of a sudden, he's claiming that this idea didn't come up until Reagan left me wondering what is what's the angle here. And I think he gave it away when he kept saying that the increased globalization and move towards free markets. So I'm just wondering if he is looking at a good society as being a more collectivist society, one where mm-hmm. there's more of this idea of equality, um, where justice is this idea of equality, whether it's a quality of opportunity or a quality of outcome, and that he is looking for a way to justify wanting to move away from the more free market solution to a more collectivist solution, and that we're going to have these technocrats. And I do think when his discussion of technocrats, I think was really good. I That I really agreed Agreed. with. I agree but this system where technocrats start deciding what is merit or what's worth merit or what's worth financial rewards and what's not like you mentioned in the beginning in his, his view of the world maybe people who um, make a lot of money, but aren't really offering a lot of value to society. Like um, I think you, what was it? Financial planners or stockbrokers or Mm -hmm. something, um, people who do investments, they would have to pay more into society. But then you could argue that when you do that, that you're taking these people, they perform a, a service and maybe not for the entire country, but they do perform a service. They are that person who can sit there and study the markets and offer up good investment advice to people who have the money to invest in the markets. So there is a benefit there. They're creating value. And if it weren't for the government, and their um, you know, qualified investor rules and ERISA and all of that stuff, everybody would be able to take advantage of that. But because the right. government wants to protect the people who are on the lower end of the scale from getting their money tied up in investments they don't understand, they keep people from being able to take advantage of those experts who are studying the markets. So that is further increasing the disparity in wealth. So is it really, I guess my question would be is, If we're going to have some central authority deciding what is value and what is merit, and they're going to decide how resources get reallocated across society, then what criteria are they going to be using to make those decisions? Whereas in a free market, the market makes the decisions, and then people are free to choose what they want to do in response to the market. So if the market is saying, Yeah. These people who handle these investments, these hedge fund managers, they're making a ton of money. So that's a signal that society values this skill very highly. Then people who are in high school and getting ready to come out and go to college, right? They can factor that into their decision of what career they want to pursue. And then the other thing would be, you know, we've talked about opportunity costs. If the government starts getting involved and starts pushing people into particular careers, because we view that as having more merit, like being a teacher then are we going to be causing people who would be great financial planners to go into teaching where they're just mediocre teachers? And then what's the opportunity Mm -hmm. cost of doing that? And he seemed to... In the book, he seemed to, well, maybe you remember, but he seemed to think like people would only have one skill. So like, yeah. you know, <laughs> you're, you either great at playing the violin or you're a great basketball player. Well, right. a great basketball player is going to make a lot more money than a great violin player, but it's possible. And he's, like I said, he seemed to not consider this, that you could be both. You could be really good right. at both <laughs> and you get your choice, right? You can pick the, the really high financial reward path and play basketball. Or you can pick maybe, you know, the more rewarding, you know, for you path of being the artist who's a wonderful violin player. But he seemed to just count, he seemed to just create this world where, you know, you only have one skill and that skill that you're born with, that's a question of fate, that's luck. LeBron James was lucky because he can play basketball better than I can, right. but I think the reality is is there's some choice in there and yes. it and yeah. it could be that yeah, you don't maybe you couldn't be LeBron James but you could be a good enough basketball player to you know to be somebody who rides the bench in the in the NBA for you know ten years or something and still make a lot of money so there's there's choice there. You can look at the market and make your decisions.
1: Yeah. So I, I want to I add a, a, a comment there, a quote directly from the book, which I think supports some of what you're saying in terms of how he sees the, the political dialogue that he would like to see happen. He says, the common good is not simply about adding up preferences or maximizing consumer welfare. It is about reflecting critically on our economics and social preferences, ideally elevating and improving them so we can live worthwhile and flourishing lives. So I think that there's there's two ideas here that we can separate that people can ask themselves in evaluation of society and when these these claims are made about how we should move forward. So the first is you know what is an ethics society? His his description which is this idea of justice, good and progress. Maybe that's sufficient for you. Maybe you say, you know what, D- those are the three things I care about a, a, a society that is just, which which means that you you receive what you put in. The idea that good, that the things that we're doing are actually a benefit in some way and that it's progress. It's not stagnating. I think that's the way I interpreted his, his idea. So maybe you're okay with that. And we, let's, let's put that on the side and say that we just agree with that. Then we get into this next question of, okay, so, so we have that as an ethics lens. And then the question is, what is the common good? What is the vision that we 're moving towards, and this is the quote that I just made, uh, or just took from the book, which again is at the end i I think it should have been been put at the front more of an argument for why you need to have his vision, which he calls a civic conception of the common good, not just the common good but a civic conception of it and what I think he's trying to say here uh, so i'm going i 'm going to put on the the idea can like, give him the best possible interpretation. His argument in the book is that our buying and selling behavior, uh, which we use as a barometer for our what we find valuable in society, misses on things that we do find society but don't have a dollar value. Okay, so let, let's put this into practice. This is Andrew Yang during the last election cycle saying women that stay home with their babies or or stay at home dads they aren't valued by society. Society doesn't give them a, a, an hourly wage for them staying at home with their kids, even though it's a very valuable activity for society for them to raise their children. We should rethink how we, co- we give money to them for that. And, and that, that's what it comes down to, sending them a check, giving them an earned income credit, doing some other way of putting a price on that activity that the market isn't really paying for. Okay, so that's that's what he's really saying. He's saying we should be thinking about how we we pay for that. Then he goes on to talk about our social preferences, which I, I think is extremely broad. Which is the point you're you're making. Which is, and it also begs the question: How do we know? How, I mean, I, we can we can have conversations. In a, in a room about, well, th- these are valuable, important social ideas, but how do we actually know? The, the market has a test. Whether we like it or not is a test. It says, will you give up your labor that you use to earn these dollars for a product or a service that I'm offering? And that gives us a, an understanding. It gives us data for what people are willing to pay for, what they're willing to invest in. It's unclear to me how his solution here, which is this idea that we're going to get to a, a better civic conception, which by the way, I conceptually, I think actually makes a lot of sense. I love when he's talking about we need better debate and when he talks about the fact that our politicians basically need to be talking to the common person. And that common person includes people that are highly educated and those who are not. And should be looking at all of them equally as members of society, as citizens that merit respect by virtue of nothing else than being human. I like that. I agree with that. What I struggle with is the concept that we can somehow then figure out exactly what those preferences are and then make these investments Outside of a market mechanism. And, you know, maybe to be generous to him, he wasn't saying, and I don't think he was per se saying, hey, we just need to get rid of markets. But he was almost throwing this out that we can do better, but without telling us what that mechanism is for doing better, right? Because if it's just debate and, and discussions, you're looking at this going, well, I'm sorry, but the solutions that you offer just really aren't there. I, at least I didn't find
0: them to be. Hi, y'all. This is Scott dropping in here to let you know about a great new product that Paul and I put together. It's a guide outlining how you can have more productive conversations and avoid time-wasting arguments. And the good news is that it's free. So all you have to do is go to mentallyunscripted.com and sign up for our email newsletter. That's mentallyunscripted.com to get your free guide on how to never argue again. Okay, so
1: I, I think <laughs> we, that took a lot, lot you know, a good amount of oxygen right there just talking about just, just his definition of these ideas that should have re- re- I think received a lot more attention in his book. Right there, not not so much in a, a discussion specific about merit, uh, but really, what does a society founded about these ideas look like? How does how do we need to change merit to, to address that? Would have would have shifted the focus of the book. Um, okay,
0: and I yeah. thought I thought it was interesting that he spent a lot of time in the book criticizing technocrats. Under this idea that these technocrats, they, they go to Ivy League schools, they get these degrees, they graduate, they get hired into government based off of their Ivy League degrees, and then they look at the world or they look at the rest of the country as, you know, you dumb rubes, you know, mm-hmm. this is the hubris coming in, you dumb rubes, I have an Ivy League degree, you should listen to everything I say, you know, this whole trust the experts thing, and I mean, we've been hearing it for 18 months now people in the government they've got the they're the experts they've got these fancy degrees so we should just be quiet and listen to them but then he turns around and then seems to want technocrats to decide what is worthy of merit and worthy of value in the economy rather than just letting the pricing mechanism handle that. And that's been the big criticism of socialism and why Ludwig von Mises and some other economists have shown that communism and socialism can't work is because there's no pricing mechanism in the economy to tell people where the resources need to go.
1: Yeah. People don't like that answer. They don't. I mean, I, I can understand why you don't like that answer. If you are frustrated by seeing homeless people on the roads and feeling like we have too many people getting shot, you look at the societal ills and you say, you know, Scott, why can't then if the market's so great, why can't it figure that stuff out? They ask that question, and though I and there, I think that they they, they look to something like what well, Michael's written here and say, oh, this this sounds like this guy's finding out a, a solution for some of that. I think we both agree the, the the rest of the framework doesn't seem to exist there from a solution perspective.
0: Right. Yeah. He doesn't at all address how his version of society, I don't, I don't know if he even named it, but his version of a good society is going to be superior than what we have now. Yeah. And that takes well, I mean, me yeah. back to the, yeah, that, I mean, that takes me back to the question of, so what? Right. I came away from this book just thinking like, I mean, his big complaint was that some people are going to feel bad. Um, <laughs> and and so we need to reorder society in order to keep that from happening. Um, right.
1: Well, th- so that's, let's talk a little bit about the solutions that he's proposed, because I, I think I, I started off this discussion about sort of his, his principles, right? He has this idea that populism and inequality are indicators of society that's failing. He, th- he he justifies that as saying merit is the problem, and we have to rethink merit. And then part of that then feeds into this idea we need to have a new civic conception. Right. And we just talked about that. It's about it's he argues in the book and he, he gives some history about the market mechanism and pricing and how we, we put value on activities that aren't really valuable for people. And so the examples he'll use is as you already called, he said, you know, financial high frequency financial trading or cigarettes. And, you know, he makes the argument, well, no one is saying that, that cigarettes are good for people. So how can we argue that even though it makes billions of dollars, that it's good for society? That's a very interesting question, right? Because I think then you, when what you don't really see in his, his ideal is, well, then how do you allow for people to have choice, which is what you brought up, right? I mean, we can look at a whole list of activities that are not particularly good for individuals to, to take, right? Um, from everything from smoking and drinking, you know, things we, we associate with syntaxes to taking dangerous pictures for Instagram. Uh, And you know, on top of buildings or doing parkour—I mean, there's a whole the the list of very risky activity is never ending because humans seem to find new ways of putting themselves at risk. It's not really addressed there, like how do we think through that? But let's actually get into the the thoughts about his his solutions as as I found them. Um, Assuming that that merit is the problem, one of the solutions that he put forth was this idea of changing the sorting mechanism. So. The idea is that elite schools in the United States, primarily, uh, they they have this race to the top where everyone is just in a pressure cooker to get better SAT scores. And he makes a claim that uh, based on some of the data that he shares that I couldn't actually trace down, that SATs are not actually a good predictor of how well you will perform in school and that just looking at grades and other activities that you could you could actually identify students. So Let's get rid of this idea that we're going to sort people by this really competitive metrics. And instead, we we'll are just have sort of this bar, either you're good enough or you're not. And then let's also get rid of any other type of special consideration. So things like sports scholarship, things like legacy scholarships where your parents went there and they donated money and replace it all with a lottery. And the lottery would sort you, so if you're good enough, and, and how we get there isn't really described, but that, that's okay. If you're good enough, then we will give you a lottery system. You'll get a lottery ticket, and you get to go to to um, one of the universities, and they're kind of chosen at random. That was the idea of the lottery. The The, the benefit in his mind was that that gets people thinking getting away from a, a mindset of, well, I achieved all this to well, I achieved enough and then, oh, look at all this luck that plays into my role and how well I did, right? That I had to go to this school versus that school. That's that's kind of one of the main ideas. Get rid of the sorting function and focus on good enough and then uh, the, the I guess impressing upon people the luck. Um what do you think of that idea on its face?
0: I don't know how much any of that's going to solve his problems because people will still figure out a way to get their kids into the schools that they want them to get into. I mean, it's, it's, I guess it's a a great vision to have, but why force a kid to go to a school? They don't, they maybe don't want to go to you get, accepted into you know i don't know minnesota university of minnesota when you wanted to go to usc so now you're rather than being in the nice warm weather in california <laughs> right you're stuck up in minnesota i mean how no, that's, that's
1: not that's not knock on minnesota we got lots of listeners from there okay Well, i mean
0: i'm not saying there's anything wrong with minnesota i'm just saying it's cold and you may not yeah, be that's happy a, there, that's objectively right? true Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, you may not be happy up there.
1: So, so he's minimizing some of the other factors that go into college right. selection.
0: Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I don't see in, I don't know, maybe he would have some sort of like a rank order system where you get to pick like your top 10 colleges in a particular right. order. And, you know, maybe they try to do something that way. But again, you've got, you're yeah, not, th- you're not giving
1: people technocratic solution to a problem (laughs)
0: right and yeah so i'll go back again he i mean he was really criticizing technocrats but now he seems to have created a system where we need technocrats to somehow figure out how this system's going to work and how they're going to order the colleges and and universities and i just don't understand why you would want to take choice away from people right well i yeah In small groups, people are pretty dumb and, you know, in the mob mentality, these small mobs where they're driven by emotion, right? They're pretty dumb, but large groups who have the time to analyze a situation and can reason through it are actually pretty smart. You know, it's the the (laughs) wisdom of the masses and things like that. So when you just leave people alone to pursue what is good for them, then I would argue that society benefits as a whole much more than having some group at the top in Washington, D.C. trying to micromanage everything.
1: I agree. So I'm going to say what I like and what I didn't like. So I like where he offers a solution. So I think that's positive. I see the argument for getting rid of these other ways in which universities are allowing people in. But then I also don't, if they're private institutions, it does beg the question, what is how much leeway are they allowed to have in the operations that they run? What is the difference between the elite university and the not uh, the 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 less competitive university in and, and what decisions are gonna they're gonna contribute to that. The, the the solution itself, it it felt a little bit very light. Like I, I mean, he puts a lot of emphasis on this idea that merit is what is driving people insane. And so you first you have to you have to buy into that. And it would've been interesting if there had been and and I really I mean I may have missed this, I don't think I did. It would have been really interesting if he had cited studies where behavioral studies where they they studied the long the even the short-term impacts of running this type of game with people to see does it does it really contribute to you feeling the, the lack in the hubris, but it, that wasn't there, at least not that that I recall. And then I it's it's hard to see how you know, we, so we, we kind of get away from this idea of race to the top because we only have to run halfway up the hill. Well, do we still have the issue of halfway up the hill, everyone at that level saying, listen, nanny, nanny, boobo, I'm still better than, than everyone else here. I'm part of the, my club, just got bigger. Now I'm not really worried about the difference between Harvard, Yale, Columbia, Penn, uh, because we're all just kind of good enough. Uh, but by the way, we're still infinitely better, which I, Somewhat feels is, is sort of the default for today. I mean, you know, anybody who's been to an Ivy is going to say, "Well, I mean, I'm with my Ivy colleagues, and and for good reason. I mean, they are elite colleges. It, you you are having to get better grades, and you have to have a, a a much better resume. In theory, that suggests that you are able to do things that perhaps other people cannot. Um, but it, it, it's unclear to me how this actually solves the problem. And I think to the point you're making, it does beg the question. How do we, how does this actually get adjudicated? How do I actually put this into practice without it becoming overly technocratic? Um, one thing I would say that I did, I did appreciate and like, he's saying, listen, we don't need a, a pressure cooker for kids, right? We're, we're we've, we've re geared our resources into everyone going through this pressure cooker to get into the best school, schools. I, I think that. That really is a great place to have a conversation. It's just unclear to me that this is the the number one solution that's really going to take that off. Just didn't seem to really do that for me.
0: And I think there's other solutions to that as well. You know, one thing is the U.S. government is the biggest employer in the country, and he goes through sections of the book where he just keeps talking about how Obama just kept wanting to hire Ivy League graduates. Right. Well, you know maybe the maybe the government could stop being so elitist and focusing on ivy leaguers and start hiring people from other other colleges i've known plenty of ivy leaguers who i thought were as dumb as a hunk of asphalt <laughs> sure and some who are very smart but that's right. the same way at any state school or any other school and i just wonder if you know if we focus on this just good enough right what are we cutting ourselves off from the top end competition is good in that it makes people excel and i get that it the competition could be incredibly intense but like i said if the employers start pulling back on that a little bit and realizing that they can get people just as smart from a state school as they can get from an ivy league school then maybe there'd be a little less pressure to get into that ivy league school
1: yeah and you know funny enough we we ha- we see some experiments already running there where the some of the large tech firms are saying we don't even need a college degree, right? We're going to be looking for other um, heuristics that suggest that you would be a good fit. Yeah,
0: and that was one of the things that I was thinking of. Is I know there's a program called Praxis now where you don't even go, you don't even really go to college. Like Praxis, I guess is is the college, but they're focused on getting you internships, so it's a lot of on the job training. Mm-hmm. So when you get through your four year program, rather than being a hundred thousand dollars in debt. You've actually made money and you have a ton of real world experience. I think there's a lot of companies like you said that are going that way where they're starting to look and realizing that the value of a college education just quite isn't quite there anymore or that there
1: yeah or that there's other characteristics that are going to signal someone who's really competent and good uh, that you can you can bring into the organization, which also maybe fits some other goals you have in terms of diversity or other you know objectives that you want to you want to achieve. I, I, I do want to point out I, because you know I think we're we're putting a lot of criticism on the book. I, I do agree with a, a few things that are um, that that it, points that he made, and one of them is this idea of of arrogance or hubris uh, with the college elites, you know college and above being where they look down on the people that don't have the college education, and so he he does make the point in this book about needing to talk to people and realizing that every citizen is a is a member of society and that a lot of the discussions we have isn't, you know, isn't this idea of smart and dumb. There's other practical considerations and subjective considerations about our morality. And so he points out that Obama used the language of smart, smart, um, smart policy. He used that all the time.
0: Smart grids, smart, smart cars. Smart grids.
1: And and he's using this as a way, you know, the author is that when we when we frame everything as either smart or dumb, it's very easy then to assume that you have all the information. Again, that you are the expert or that the experts have all the information, that they've made the right choice and that there, there truly is only one choice. There is the one that is morally justified and the one that isn't. Uh, and he, he makes the case that's not the case. So I, I, I think that's something he does a good job. And, and for, for anybody, and I've seen this happen. Now, is it because of where they went to school? I think that's a contributing factor. I think that there's other variables that contribute to these people having the inability to see others for for being human and being citizens, uh, and instead see them as you know the, the uneducated. We just need to be able to make a decision for them. So I think I think he does bring that up. Although you know, I think you could probably point out, well, your solutions don't seem to really fix all that. Necessarily, it just but but you've stated that those are those are bad goals to have, um, and I I tend to agree with that. Okay, so yeah, sorry that was a, that was a little bit of a, <laughs> a tangent on the one side. I, I did want to give him some credit on, on that, um, and I again I, I like the idea of having better dialogue, um, but um, I'm not sure that sorting is going to get us there. So then the the next part that he talks about is this idea of dignity of work, right? Which is which is respecting people's contributions to society, and we talked a little bit about that. The you know the question of well, are you work- doing work that today is completely unpaid, or what about all those jobs that people do that are um, people assume are, you know they're they're blue collar they're they're not good enough for me because I'm a white collar type of person. And there, I, I you know I'll be honest, I thought that the definitions or the solutions were not very strong. It was it basically came down to we could start by looking at how we tax certain activity that again doesn't feel seem to be good. Uh, I, I mentioned smoking before. But he, he specifically talks about taxing high frequency trading as an activity that, that ingratiates or gives more money to the trading firm because they have a they have a millisecond advantage, but doesn't really add anything to society. And so he says we should be taxing that and showing that we, you know, those are activities that aren't Quite valued at the same way as maybe other contributions, and then he he also then I think goes on to talk about the way that we tax income and thinking about how we should be taxing it as um, I, I think basically to give people more money, <laughs> particularly if they're at the bottom rung, and maybe thinking of some other tax incentives, but using it as a way to say that, that taxes are the way in which we vote for activities that are good and not good. So when you hear that, I, is that the solution that you read? As part of this this idea of giving more um may i guess giving giving work more more justice and and more um i don't know uh, i I'm, I'm drawing a blank on the word I'm thinking of, but I think that's what he was trying to get to is just the respect that we have for for these different types of
0: work yeah again, I think he's he's using paychecks as a proxy for merit. I think so he's saying that you know being a teacher is more respectable or more worthy of merit so we need to tax the people who are running a casino and give take money away from them and redistribute it to the people who are teaching our kids and I think on the surface right there's a lot to be said for that but society as a whole is saying that we we want to reward the casino operator more then we want to reward the teachers. In aggregate, it may not be that way. It's just that there's a lot more teachers than there are casino operators. So each teacher is going to get a smaller piece of that pie. But my big problem with that is, again, you've, you've got a government using taxes to interfere with a market. And then you have to wonder what you're losing out on. Uh, because is someone is an entrepreneur going to want to take a risk in some new business venture? If they know that if that risk pays off, they're just going to have to, they're going to get taxed to death just so someone else who took a, a safer path and became a teacher can feel like their contributions to society are being rewarded. So what what are we losing out on when we do that? We have to reward the the risk takers. And then again... It, you know, say you've got a new, I don't know, you've, you've got an idea for some new product and you're not sure how the the technocrats are going to view that product. Is that product going to be one that is viewed as being high merit or is that one that's going to get taxed a lot, right? And mm-hmm. you're not going to know until you take the risk and actually create the product. Like, right. um, you know, Jeff, Jeff Bezos, for example, right? He may not have ever known that what Amazon was going to get classified as. So he may have just said, you know what, I'm not even going to take the risk. I'm not going to put all my money and effort into this just to find out on the back end that I'm going to have to give up most of my profits uh, because some technocrat in Washington decided that the the service that I'm offering is less valuable than a service that someone else is offering.
1: Yeah, you could make the case that in that scenario, what if he had realized, listen, the way that I fly into the radar is I never change shipping beyond receiving it to in 2 weeks. You couldn't receive anything um sooner than 2 weeks because that was the existing capacity and capability of the US Postal Service at the time. And I'm I'm using that. I don't know the exact numbers. There's a lot of people that would sit there and go, "Well, wait a second. Why does that have to be 2 weeks? Why can't it be 7 days?" Well, that's that's what the that's what the postal service is is able to do and they have certain constraints on what their capabilities are. And you know that that's a good because there's other considerations and factors coming into that. Y- you can see how these other variables start to play in and, and people have a difficult time seeing how that risk could could manifest itself. The, the other risk, which is much more pernicious in my opinion, is that the risk takers look very different than the non-risk takers. It's so that the non-risk takers see the the benefits that accrue to the to the mega. The mega winners, so the Elon Musk, the Jeff Bezos, um, you know, Bill Gates and Steve Jobs. They they don't see all of the people that tried and failed, right? That that went into bankruptcy and had to rebuild. The the people that got close but didn't quite make it. Um, the ideas that were really interesting and would have been life changing, but they couldn't get the capital. They couldn't convince other people. Maybe they didn't have the skills. You don't see that, right? And so there's a sense that uh, you know these people that that are extremely impressive and that change society. Maybe they they just got super lucky, right? And not you know, luck plays into it, right? But there's there is a lot of skill that goes into it. And we are are minimizing sort of the mindset that you have to have to to make some of those changes. And then then also asking the question, you know, if it came from a different source like the government, what does it look like? And I think history suggests that the government doesn't have a very good track record of being able to innovate. Uh, they're very good at, in times of doing fundamental research, but they aren't very good at making decisions on, you know, how, how to take something from concept to to market. It just isn't their function. And people, people, anybody that wants to argue, you no, know, they, they can do a better job. I think is is denying. Some of the realities of your constituents, right, because your constituents become your voters, not just your marketplace so it 's just a different calculus that you have to make on uh, deciding you know h- how am I going to move forward on these decisions so so to bring it all back why, why do we talk about all these risks? Well, to bring it all back, it sounds reasonable at the beginning to talk about taxes as a way to dignify work, um, but it also begs the question: is that the best way to do it and it also begs the question what risks are you entailing, right? What risks are you inviting if you start to think of that as the way in which we do it, right? That the taxes that basically the, these certain activities are, are going to be taxed super high because we've now deemed them no good. So, I mean, could we say that engineers at, at Facebook, because right now we see it as a net negative for society, should be taxed at 60% their income? because the social benefit of Facebook is very low. I, that would actually be very much like, like looking at what China's done, where they've banned access to apps like TikTok for no more than an hour a day during the week.
0: I wonder if his solution, if it wouldn't get rid of hubris, it would just shift it away from yeah. the people who are making the most money to people who are in these you know, deemed high merit jobs. So would the teachers just start looking down on the, the financial, on the investors? something like that and so in that case you know what are we have we actually fixed a problem or have we just shifted it
1: yeah and i I think that's a great question and i i think that's where a lot of the solutions felt flat you know it's a little bit like when we reviewed bill gates book and it felt like you know there's this dense middle where he's he's reviewing all of these elements of our, our of energy and and um how we make things, how we build things, how we consume things and get from here to there. And then we get to the solutions and it's kind of like these felt a little, they felt really, really light, right? Like really, did did you just do this in an afternoon on the back of your hand kind of thing?
0: Yeah. Um, That's why I said, I, I, I really get the feeling like he wanted to he had a solution and he really wanted to <laughs> try to fit the narrative to or, right. or he had what he considers a problem and he really wanted to try to fit the narrative to, to that and so and he worked really hard at it
1: so and i, I think that's probably my biggest greatest criticism of this book and I, I know there's many parts we've been critical of it's being redundant um using the same language in some cases not being clear and then and then it gives a lot of history by the way if, if you are interested in the origins of marriage. He, he shares that. He also gives a description of the different ways in which you could, you could look at the value of market activities, um, which I think as a historical example is, is, is interesting, but not, not really helpful at the end when you're trying to think about how do we think about merit? Should it change? So let me, let me give a couple of ideas I think that we're missing in the book that could have made it stronger. The, the, the first was more of, I guess, what I will call CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, of how do you as an individual that's reading this book? By the way, when I downloaded this book, it had about 1,500 reviews on Amazon within its first year, 4.34 stars. The people that are reading this really like it, right? And that's great um, that that he's able to get that many reviews on a book. And, and so there, you, you could see where a lot of individuals are, are sort of reading this and asking, well, how do we make this change? Well, you could argue that change starts with you, the next time you see somebody say something that you find um rude or you don't understand and you, and you're thinking to yourself, well, okay, they're 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 dumb, I'm smart. Ask yourself, why do you think that? How do you know that? How do you know that what they're saying is dumb? I mean, that just, you can just kind of stop that behavior on an individual basis. And he could I think he could have had a whole chapter on on specific activities that individuals could do to challenge themselves to fight that hubris, um, to fight that that inclination to say, "Well, I'm smart, or I'm better, or I've achieved everything." Um, I think that's that's one. I think I think also he talks a lot about the concept of of what it is to be a, a citizen and giving more to this idea of civic responsibility, but he doesn't really define what a citizen is and what expectations we can have as citizens of our government and of our fellow citizens. And so there's probably um, an area where you could do a lot of discussion around well, what can you as an individual do to be a better citizen or or to even contribute to that? I mean, is it is it being engaged in some of these um, school board meetings or local government or you know just engaging with other people around you and talking about it and having having a set of questions that you could you know kind of engage people on. Um, I mean one of the ideas that's come to mind recently which I know sounds kind of silly to people, but it's it's certainly changed some of my thinking is you know next time I hear somebody not not a pundit, not a politician, not a celebrity, but the next time I hear another citizen say something like you know what something that I disagree with, just ask my. Just remind myself. That's a fellow citizen. They are entitled to to their opinion, whether I agree with it or not. That's still another citizen. We're still on Team America. So it's little things like that that, in my opinion, um, I, I've read them in some again some of Jonathan Haidt's work. But it seems like that could have made this this entire idea of how, how do we on an individual level attack some of the worst aspects of what he's calling the tyranny of merit. We could start that today, that doesn't have, we don't need to redesign how colleges work, and we don't need to try and get our tax policy change, which both of which are, are nearly impossible, but we can do activities on our own as, as individuals. So I, I think that, that would have been a, a much stronger way to, to wrap up the book. I don't know, do you, did you have any thoughts on, on I mean, maybe in your mind, like, he doesn't even need to think about some of these weaknesses, because his, his arguments to start are, are, are not very strong. I don't, I don't know if you had any thoughts there.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the way I would go is that, you know, I'm still left saying, so what, like I said, we're not going to get rid of arrogance, even in an aristocracy, there's going to be arrogance. Even like I said before, if you go into this regime where you've got the technocrats deciding what is worthy of merit, You're going to have arrogance and hubris there. Um, You're just going to be shifting it around. You know, overall, I just came away from the book thinking that the author committed the major sin in critical thinking. And that's, he started from a conclusion and worked backwards to try to fill in or to, to, to handpick the evidence that he needed. You know, this idea of inversion or flipping a product problem around to work back from the desired to solution. I mean, it's a really good tool for solving a pesky problem but it's it's not how we should be looking at issues like this and it's not how professors at our highest level educational institutions should be thinking and that mm. that was problematic for me i feel like he he created a false dichotomy where we're either an aristocracy or a meritocracy the reality is is that we're a mix we've got elements of both. And so I was just wondering how well his analysis seemed to assume that we're 100% meritocracy. And I just, I wonder how well his analysis would hold up if he started to factor in the idea of that we are a meritocracy or that we are part aristocracy, that there is This idea of, you know, your family determines where you're going to go to, or, you know, your family has a lot of influence over where you're going to go to college and the connections that you have and how well you're going to do later on in life after you get out of college. So I just, I, I feel like he wanted so badly for his worldview to have merit that he created this reality that, I mean, I'm sure it exists on one of the other Earths in the multiverse, but it doesn't exist here. Okay. Um, yeah. He I mean, he created it, it. It's a world where our fate is either 100% determined by our choices and effort, or it's 100% determined by the forces beyond our control. Yet, I I can't think of any example where that's really true. Right. And, and in fact, to make it true, I think he had to, like we mentioned before, read pretty deeply into the words and the actions of some people. Like there was an example, he had a something that John Mackey had written. I've got a note here that it was on page 47 of the version of the book that I read. John Mackey wrote this thing, and the author accused him of saying that people who fall ill deserve their fate because they're making poor choices about their health and about the food that they eat. Yet when mm-hmm. I read it, I didn't get that sense at all that he did that Mackey didn't say that disease and poor health is caused only by choices. He seemed to acknowledge in there that some people just get unlucky and have health problems through no fault of their own. After reading this book, I was just thinking like it's, it's no wonder people don't know how to think if this guy is a, (laughs) if this guy's a professor at Harvard, I'm pretty sure it's Harvard. And this is the analysis that he puts into this, where he's ignoring disconfirming evidence (laughs) I mean, like I said, I'm just, I'm not surprised. And so, I mean, overall, like it, it lays out an intriguing, but I think wholly fictional conclusion based on a hypothesis that is supported by these weak vapors of social justice, I think, because I just kept reading it and I just kept thinking that that's what he is going for here is this social justice aspect of we need to redefine merit. And reallocate resources across society so that p- nobody feels bad. Nobody feels like they're a failure. And so, like I said, I mean, at the end, I'm left with this thought of so what? I mean, even if he, everything that he claims is true, and I doubt it is, but even if it is, I mean, so what? I mean, there's going to be arrogant jerks in the world. Meritocracy, getting rid of a meritocracy is not going to get rid of them. And in my opinion, I mean, if a little arrogance and unequal distribution of wealth is the price we pay to live in, even with all of our problems, I think is the greatest time in history to be alive because there is a lot of opportunity out there. It, not everybody may have the same degree of opportunity. Some people may have to work a little harder or they may have to rely a little bit more on what luck. But Our society has moved forward at a clip that is just unprecedented, and we have raised how many people out of poverty? I mean, what's the poverty, the world poverty rate now is like, what, less than 10% when at one point before we got into what he defines as this meritocratic society, we were, you know, what, 60, 70%. I don't know the exact numbers, but it was huge, right? And so if the price we pay is a little bit of arrogance and unequal distribution of wealth for that, then yeah, I'm thinking it's probably okay. I mean, I I think we could argue that, you know, no system is going to be perfect. And also, I mean, we can't lose the advances that the best and the brightest are going to bring us because we're we're worried about someone else being resentful at someone else's success. Um, So, you know, maybe instead of trying to hold people back, our parents and teachers and professors like the author, uh, they can work harder at teaching people um, how to think and, and instill in them A sense of gratitude for the achievements of others, and you know, not some pathetic jealousy. Otherwise, you know, like I said, what's the alternative, right? Are are we going to have this build back better, great reset garbage where we don't own anything and the government? And we're happy because the government's just keeping us apathetic and lazy. I mean, that's not, it's not what I want. Um, You don't want the brave new world? No. Um, So, I mean, I just, the thought I came away with is that his solutions amount to nothing more than society-wide participation trophy. trophy. And uh, that's, I don't know, that's my two cents.
1: Yeah, no, uh, that was, that was a great, um, (laughs) that was a great answer to that question of what do you think? I, I think I think we could probably wrap it up there. I, I think for for anybody listening, you probably take away that you know while there may be some good highlights in this book, and there was a couple of of good ideas, um, the the overall read would just wasn't very impressive, and and didn't really leave us feeling like we had gained some some tremendous insight. And I and I think certainly neither one of us really walked away with the idea that, that uh, merit on its face was the number one reason that we're having the issues in our country. And therefore, that even dealing with the, uh, putting his solutions forward, we would really have a better chance of, of improving uh, some of the challenges that he put forth around inequality and our lack of national discourse. So, with that, we can wrap it up. Uh, we, we hope you've enjoyed this review of The Tyranny of Merit. You know, it's always fun to, to read a book that maybe was a little bit off our radar and, and see if there's some new insights. That we can uh, help us think. Hopefully, the next time you have a have to a discussion with somebody about a book uh, like this, you you've got some new thoughts and ideas and ways you can communicate. Different questions you can be asking uh, when someone just maybe throws out the idea that all merit is tyranny and we should we should do away with standards. um, Be able to ask some better questions about what that would mean and and perhaps what, what is the absolute you know what's the end in mind when we actually do that. So. Thanks for joining us. Uh, We'll wrap it up there. And to everyone out there, be good. And uh, we'll talk to you next time. Well, that will do it for this episode of Mentally Unscripted. But hey, you're one step closer to kicking all this tribal garbage peddled by the politicians and the media to the side and seeing the world for what it really is with intelligence and rationality. Take care.